Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome to another episode of Coaching Inside the Box. And we are more than uh, we've ever been happy to have you as our audience. We are excited to discuss um, or continue the discussion centered around really creative outside the box thought processes and approaches to teaching the game. Um, but before we dive into this episode, I've got to say again, and I've got to ask, um, hopefully even nicer than last time, please rate and review us wherever you listen to this podcast. It helps other people find the podcast. And as more people find it, I think it becomes and creates the opportunity for greater dialogue and something that we can all benefit and learn from. Um, I will say I was very excited this morning. Um, and Andy and Philippe, I mentioned this to you before we started recording. Um, uh, the the chairman of the Ashington Football Club in Ashington, England, had found our podcast and listened to, I think it was episode two, when we discussed Ashington, Ashington England. And uh, I had the greatest time this morning going back and forth through, through Twitter, direct messages with him. And, and, and I asked him what he thought. And he was quite complimentary. He said, I think you guys nailed it. Um, and he didn't remember anybody ever delving into Ashington the way that we did. Um, and, and I think he really, really appreciated... Um, digging into uh, the old days and the glory days of Ashington football. Although he did mention that his grandparents lived on some of those streets and some of those houses. And so he played street football all the time, but he didn't end up to be any good. Um, So I thought that was kind of funny. (laughs) Uh, With that said, Philippe, Andy, how are you guys doing today? Are you happy to be back? Really happy, really happy about that feedback that we had this morning. I mean, it's very rewarding that we see that someone across the ocean is uh, paying attention to us and appreciating what we're doing. So that makes us really excited about that. Yeah. And Andy, you're back to training now, right? This morning we delayed training or delayed the recording so you could train some kids. Yeah. It's fun to be training again after, uh, you know, a few months of uh, relative inactivity in terms of actually having the kids together. You know, we've been doing a lot online, but yeah, but uh, I'd like to back up a little bit though. Cause you said to people, we want them to rate us. Yeah. You know, and so, um, you know, if you if I'm you're the rating, best looking one, you're the least best looking one. Uh, Wait, hold on. <laughs> the sad thing is, even at 62, I'm better looking than you are. So, <laughs> but but if you're going to rate us well, you know, do it right there and then. If you're not going to give us a good rating, you know, I suggest a nap <laughs> between a couple of beers, <laughs> and hopefully you'll forget about the podcast. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and sometimes they go on this, you know, asking people to rate and review, but I've done some research into it. Like people aren't going to find the podcast if people don't give us ratings and give us reviews because Apple podcasts, Spotify, they all promote podcasts that, that get listened to. And so while this, this space is, is niche, right. In terms of being soccer and culture from a youth perspective, um, kind of centered somewhat in the United States, um, with different perspectives coming in. Um, I, I think it's, 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 we cover things differently in an, and, and, and in a way that other people don't necessarily see all the time. Right. right. And, we, and we actually have solutions. Yeah. You know, yeah. and a lot of people cover the problems that we've got in soccer and they don't, you know, identify, you know, and they haven't actioned solutions, you know, and we've got a long history of identifying and, and putting our money where our mouth is. Yep. And, yep. and so it's all about solutions. And on that front, let's jump into the topic today, right? Uh, um, and it's, it's should our coaching as, as youth soccer coaches, as educators, should be focused on team or focused on individual? And, and if so, how and why? And so that's what we're going to dig into today. So I've got a few questions just to kick us off, right? Should we teach individual soccer or team soccer? What can we as coaches do that raises the potential ceiling for the players we coach? If our goal is to develop better people, then we should develop leaders then, right? And if, and if we are going to develop leaders, we need people that are going to take responsibility and create things. And so with that said, I want to read a quote from Andy's favorite author. If you guys don't know, Andy's favorite author is Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, a, a funny aside, Andy, I think, owns 7,312 copies 
terms of seven effect habits. You lowballed of, it. Yeah, yeah, because when he goes to a used, used bookstore, if you see a copy or multiple copies, you buy them, and then you give them to people that you think might benefit from uh, receiving uh, the book. And I think I've received three or four, so I'm not sure what that says about Andy and how effective he thinks <laughs> did, I am. Did you play it forward, though? Because you know, <laughs> yeah, it was wasted on you, but I thought you'd give it to somebody else. Well, <laughs> I had to buy that book for college, so you should have given one to me. It would save me a few bucks. Uh, so here's what Stephen Covey says, and I think it's really uh, it apt. Sounds like the poor Brazilians whining over here. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, so here's what uh, Dr. Stephen Covey, the late Dr. Stephen Covey, says, um, uh, or a, a quote from him from The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I think it's really apt and appropriate for this conversation. Before moving into the area of public victory, we should remember that effective interdependence can only be built on a foundation of true independence. Private victory precedes public victory, right? So, so you have to be good individually because you, before you can be a good teammate or a team member. Um, Andy, you've actually shared that quote with me before. Can you just for a moment talk about what you appreciate about Covey and why you appreciate that book so much? Well, you know, Covey, he just does things in a way that is so clear, you know, and so easy to understand. And, you know, and, and breaks it down in a way that's, you know, sequential, but, you know, obviously, uh, you know, deeply correct, deeply right. And, you know, that whole, you know, private victory precedes public victory. What does that mean? Well, uh, we've all been around uh, individuals that talk a good game, right? You know, and, you know, they, you know, they like to try and take charge of a group situation, you know, and a little way into the relationship, they become somewhat of a laughing stock because people realized that they were a hollow gong, that there was no substance to back up, you know, their, you know, public persona, you know. And so, you know, we, we, we see people on the international scene that, you know, are very similar these days, you know, whether they're politicians or, you know, there are people that they talk a good game, but they don't live a good life. You know, and so they don't have credibility in the long term. They can fool people for a while, you know, and, you know, this is like the, um, the, the snake oil salesman. You know, they, they sell this medication that they promise is going to cure all evils and you know, all diseases. You know, and of course, there is no such medication, but people will, you know, they'll drink the Kool-Aid, as, as you know, people like to say over here, for a while, but they realize that there's no substance to those people. You know, and so what we have to do is we have to realize that you've got to get the fundamentals right, you know, but the fundamentals might be different to what you think fundamentals are, you know, but you've got to get the fundamentals right in order to be that player that has tremendous respect. It's, a, it's interesting you say fundamentals. My first experience in soccer was playing YMCA, right, way back in, in the late 80s. And the first thing we worked on in practice was passing. Right. It's 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 that's the fundamental. I think that's most often the first thing taught, which would be counter to what Covey says. You have to be individually good first before you can be a good teammate. And, and that that's what people think of when they think fundamental, you know, and passing is not even the most fun in fundamental because the most fun <laughs> is in scoring goals. So yeah. it's in shooting. And the second most fun is in beating people. So it's in deceptive dribbling. So, you know, it's not even the most fun, yeah. you know, and but it's certainly not, you know, the most fundamental because, you know, if you look at the game, the, the world's best players are the ones that can destroy people in the one-on-one, take people on, and put the ball in the net. So, you know, the fundamental skills you need in order to really be the game winner, you know, are not the simple skills. They're the most difficult skills. They're the most complicated skills. You know, and so, and it's the same in life. The skills you need to be brilliant in, you know, a science arena, you know, brilliant in a social arena, a social media arena, you know, you know, the career skills in life, you must have the brilliance in order to be most respected, you know, and the most successful people are usually the one with the brilliance in the long run. Now, occasionally you find that, you know, there's a con artist that gets very, you know, a very high position based on a lot of bluster and being in the right place at the right time, you know, but that person usually gets brought down to earth, yeah. you know, because people wise up and they won't support them anymore. They eventually realize the emperor has no clothes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But the people that sustain success are the ones that over a long period of time, you know, have, you know, gotten people on board with them because on the front end, 
you know, maybe they talked a good game even on the front end, but they had a lot to back it up with, which actually brings up a question. Why are you still with me after all these years? Because I talked a good game on the front end, but really I haven't backed it up, right? So, no, I'm only kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good question though, right? Like, I mean, Andy, you are someone that is opinionated and verbose and and intense and, and, and you think outside of the box and you always have. And so there were multiple times along the way for me as a player playing for you or eventually as a, as a, as a colleague or a, um, an underling within the, the organization to, to, to come to a fork on the road and think, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe Andy's not all that he's cracked up to be, right? But when, when, when I look back at my experience alongside you, when given the opportunity to evaluate, okay, is this, is this legit? Or does this just sound good, right? And and of course, we've I've had multiple of those opportunities. It's all, it always comes back to legit, right? It always comes back to I've had a great experience through that, and I became a great dribbler. Or I became a brave, creative leader, and so for that reason, like I stuck around, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and and you know, in in all seriousness, more important than any of those things, um, you became a really wonderful person, and I I say that in all sincerity. You know, I'm not kidding around this time. You know, and, uh, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, and I've said this to many people, you know, there's you and Kyle that, uh, you know, that are in our organization that played for me at ages four and six. And one way or another, we've been together ever since, you know, and I've got five daughters in real life and I've got three stepkids, you know, another daughter through that, you know, so it's really eight kids in real life. But I've also got, uh, you know, other people that I see as, as like almost my offspring, you know, and you and Kyle are that way, you know, and, and so, and over the years, I think there's no question that, you know, like you say, the emperor has no clothes. You know, if I had been blowing smoke, you would have found me out, you know. And yes. so, you know, I like to think that over the years that, you know, and obviously nobody's going to be right all the time. And I've made a lot of mistakes. But in general, the progress has been positive and we've been able to stay together because it's been good for you and it's been good for your family and it's been good for everybody. And it's been that, you know, that ultimate Stephen Covey again, win, win or no deal. Sure. You know, it's win, win, win all the way around. And that's, you know, that's what we seek is that win, win all the way around. It's not about any one of us, you know, being that person in control. Everybody has the chance to lead and everybody wins as a result of everybody stepping up and taking that responsibility. But we have to develop great individuals first. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's all going to fall flat on its face because if you don't have the substance to back up, you know, what it is that you're trying to put into practice, then you're going to fail. You're going to be found out. 100%. And so to come back to Covey, right, to segue back there, um, another quote from him, you can't have the fruits without the roots. I, first off, I love that. I feel like that should be like the start of a rap song. But <laughs> you can't have the fruits without the roots. It's the principle of sequency. sequencing. Private victory precedes public victory. Self-mastery and self-discipline are the foundation of good relationships with others. Independent inter interdependence is a choice only independent people can make, right? And like that last bit, interdependence is a choice that only independent people can make. You can't truly be a good member of a team. Let's talk soccer for a moment, right? You can't truly be a good member of a team if you're not independently really good. At least you can't be on a good team. And 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 so I'm going to segue and bring that to 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 Philippe, right? So we talk, we, we, we gush about Brazil all the time here on the show. Um, and, and we talk about how great an individual f uh, Brazil is, um, but it has made up the great teams. And, and culturally, looking back on your youth and your, your, your time growing up in Brazil, how does, that, how does that jive? Like, are you guys independent first and team second, uh, culturally and soccer-wise? Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you think of soccer, we... It's actually the same Brazil, like, what's the best 11? Out of a pool of 20, you get the best 11 best soccer players. They're not even looking at positions and roles that they're going to do. It's like, if you get the 11 best and put them together, they'll figure it out. They're good. So they're going to... So we already have that mentality a little bit, not to focus so much in the role. What can you bring to the team in in regards to the team game, it's more of putting 11 good individuals together. And that's how professional soccer players are brought up. If you think about it, uh, let's get Barcelona. You get Barcelona Academy, 
it's not the 11 stars of their U20 team that go, that go up. They're going to pick two or three. So the two or three individuals that will be part of their team, uh, their professional team. So it's everything is focused on the individual. And in Brazil, especially, like the way we grow up is you want to be the best uh, uh, individually. You want to be the best at taking somebody on one-on-one so you can make fun of them. And that that's the fun part of soccer. Like you don't you don't want to pass the ball. I, I, I shared about that uh, last episode. We would get to school and there would be 20 on each team with one ball. And if you pass the ball, you wouldn't get it back. So you don't want to pass the ball. You want to dribble. You want to take people on. And I think that translates for our culture uh, outside of uh, soccer as well. Brazil is full of really good individuals in regards to arts, music, and all that because it, it's part of our culture. We just we want to do what fulfills us. We want to have fun. We want to do what we enjoy. We don't want to uh, necessarily follow the norm. You know, that's kind of... Uh, intrinsic in our culture so i think that translates to soccer very well for sure so, so can i can i yeah. interject here because you know this comes to the you know what is the central concept of winning you know and you know and so we have to answer the question you know how do you perceive winning you know and you know i say to people you know what do you perceive as winning you know is it a big house is it a big car you know, and in the sports arena, what do we perceive of winning? You know, it's the end result of the game, right? You know, we, you know, if we eked out, you know, a one-zero victory and we defended the whole game, had one breakaway and we scored a goal and we won, we're winners. But are we really winners? You know, if we played that way and sneaked one goal and won the game, we're probably losers. You know, because what we've done is we've sacrificed certainly the enjoyment of the game. You know, because all we did is we hacked and we whacked and we beat people up and, you know, we just got behind the ball and defended as a unit, you know, and we basically admitted that we're not as good as the other team. And so, you know, we're going to play a t tactical system that admits that we're crap, you know, in order just to get a final statistically somewhat positive result. But, you know, by focusing on, um, you know, do I have a big house, a fast car, you know, I'm actually probably losing because I'm actually putting the wrong things in front of, you know, do, do my family love me? You know, do I have a lot of love in my life? Am I mentoring other people? Am I doing a wonderful thing for, you know, other humans in this society? Or, you know, am I one of those miserable individuals that just focuses on what the world can do for me? And I try and squeeze everything out of the world that I can get, you know, and, you know, and I believe that it should be the other way, you know, and, and dare I say it, you know, the culture I came from, you know, with the history in British Empire, you know, Britain is very much about just the statistical win, you know, beating up other countries to rob them of their natural resources, you know, and a lot of genocide and a lot of ugly things in British history, you know, in order to, you know, make, you know, the rich people at home comfortable and give them things that they couldn't have unless they did that to other people in other countries. You know, so Britain comes from a huge egotistical position. And dare I say it, the USA is moving away from being a, a more, you know, purist, save the world culture, you know, into more of a, what, can, what have you done for me lately culture, you know, and I don't think it's a good way to go. It's not a good look for the world. And certainly in soccer, we have to focus on the individuals. We're mentors to kids. So what we have to focus on is developing these brave, creative individuals who are ultimately very fair, you know, and willing to do things that cost them the game in order to do the right thing. And with that in mind, you know, I've been going through the attic and I came out, you know, with a, you know, an old scrap of something in the Legends Club history that, that you know, I'm particularly proud of because um, before anybody had ever done this and I'd ever seen on this TV, you know, we were in a tournament and, you know, this was the championship game and it was a tied game, and the referee, you know, gave a very poor call in our favour, you know, that gave us a penalty kick, you know. And so, and this was when the Legends Club was young, and we had a lot to prove, and I had a lot to prove as a coach. And so, we needed to win this tournament, you know, but it was a horrendous call, and it was obviously not a penalty kick, you know. And so, I called over the guy that, you know, I nominated to take the kick, and I said, do me a favour, roll the ball gently to the goalkeeper, because we all know it wasn't a penalty kick, you know, and if we take advantage of that, we're cheating. You know, we're cheating to win, 
you know, thinking just of the repute it will give us in the society, but we're not thinking of our own character and our own ability to do the right thing. You know, so we rolled the ball to the other team's goalkeeper. Now, unbeknownst to me, you know, the, there was a mum on the other team that, uh, you know, saw this as an exceptional thing to do. She wrote to the Sun newspapers here in Kansas City, and the, the editor, Steve Rose, wrote an article about, you know, he called it the kick heard around the world because we gave up the chance to win in order to get, as Stephen Covey says, you know, the long-term win, the, the, the public victory. You know, you have to do the right things as an individual to get the public victory. Now, guess where her son Danny is, who was on the other team, and is a parent now. So Danny, this lady's son, who wrote to the editor of The Sun to get that article written, you know, is now a parent of a kid in which club? Our club. Our club. Never played for yeah. us as a kid, but he brought his kid to our club because we represented his family values. So two generations down the road, removed from the lady that wrote to the Sun newspapers, we have now got Danny's daughter playing in our club, and she's going to be a heck of a player. You know, so you know, it's, it's interesting to see if you do the right thing, how in the long term you become much happier, you know, much better rewarded, not monetarily. You know, I'm talking about spiritually because you know, it's about how we feel about ourselves that makes life worth living. And if we do the right thing, we feel great about ourselves. Yeah. Well, and to, to speak of that and, and to bring it t- topical and time sensitive, we're in the midst of tryouts now here in, in Kansas and Missouri where we, where we live. And, and, and tryouts is a crazy time. And I, I surely am somewhat joking when I say it's a time that I really enjoy. Uh, uh, but it really is because the conversations I have with parents now is fun. Because my conversation is entirely developed, wrapped up in... I am only going to do what is best for your kid for the entire season long. And everything that I do in training and in games is going to be built around individual development for your son or your daughter. And, and that's not something that coaches often say. They say, you know, we're going to meld the, the individual into the team and the team's going to do well. And those that, those that work hard at practice and, 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 sh- and, 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 and are performing are going to play. And, and my response is, no, every kid's going to play, is going to play equally. And I'm going to ask your son to do things that aren't good for the team now but are really good for him individually now and later and 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 that's a conversation that's fun and i think it's 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 kind of a a cornerstone of the coaching philosophy that i think all three of us share yeah i mean if you think about it uh the team concept here in youth soccer that team is not going to stay together after the their youth careers like they are not going to go all the whole team the whole roster into the same college and they're going to play together for the same coach uh, they're going to be individuals. So building a team and making a good team, a successful team, a winning team, but not focusing on these individuals, then whenever they finish their youth career, yeah, maybe they'll win a state cup or something, but individually they're not going to achieve much because they were they were sacrificing their individual progress and development to reach team goals too early in their lives. They need to become uh, fantastic individuals first, for sure. So a question I asked at the front, at the top end, what can we as coaches do to raise the potential ceiling for the players that we coach, right? And and I think that that is at the core, maybe two or three core uh, pillars of, of what youth coaches have as a responsibility to do. And 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 you were talking about some of the great players in Brazil. Um, and in previous episodes, we've talked about some of the greatest players in the world. And, and, and I, there's three things that I think all of the top players have, right? Uh, can top players play in tight spaces? Yes. Yes. Check. Right. Are they good in the clutch, right? In, in, in the pressure packed, um, uh, moments. Yes. Yes. Right. And are they good in the penalty box, right? Either the attacking penalty box or the defensive penalty box? Yes. Yes. Okay. So if our responsibility of coaches is, is at least in part to ensure that their ceiling is as high as it potentially could be, right? In terms of how far they can go in the game, we need to 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 a significant, if not total, focus, uh, a total degree, um, focus on tight spaces, clutch, and penalty box skills, deceptive dribbling and goal scoring. And so, Philippe, if you could just take a moment, could you describe, because I really want to spend a good chunk of this podcast talking about the ways in which we work on tight spaces, 
clutch skills, and penalty box moments in training. Uh, so could you talk about 1v1s for a moment and how we employ 1v1s and how often we do 1v1s and, and, and that? Yeah, so in our club, uh, our base, basically our curriculum, especially in the early stages, uh, the kids go through 1v1s pretty much every practice. Uh, it's pretty much 1v1 in shooting. That's 90% of our focus. Uh, so the 1v1s, uh, kids will be partnered up and they'll have a ball between two they're going against each other and instead of having lines which every kid hates they're all going to be on the field playing at the same time and it creates a massive chaos which will create not only that environment of 1v1 competition against the person you're going against but will put them in tight spaces, things happening all around them. Okay, so let me ask you. So, Okay, so a team, a roster full of kids are playing 1v1. How many kids are we talking about on the field at once? Uh, 12, 6, maybe 6 1v1 games happening at the same time, maybe more. 12 kids, 6 balls, 6 games, yeah. maybe more. It could be 7 or 8. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But bear in mind, though, these are tiny indoor fields. Exactly. So how big are these fields most typically? Uh, you know, for the older kids, you know, 12 and above, you know, they're 72 by 36, you know, for... Feet. Uh, yeah, feet, yeah, feet, feet, not yeah. yards. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. Good point. I didn't even think <laughs> some people are going to think yards. Yeah, um, you know, and then for the you know the kids between you know ages about you know seven, eight, and twelve, you know, then they're fifty-six by you know by twenty-eight, I think. Yeah, twenty-eight. Yeah. You know, and so you know these are postage stamps, and and all of those fields are just a little bit bigger than the penalty box that they would be playing on the outdoor field. Or, you know, or even a bit smaller. Yeah. But, but it's that central avenue of the penalty box. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's literally the top of the restraining arc to the goal line and about, you know, you know maybe eight to ten feet either side of the posts. So, so you're in the clutch. You're so, in the, the, highest, the highest defended area of the field where the defensive pressure is the, is the most intense and the best defenders, you know, occupy that space. So Absolutely. just just think about it. If you're defending somebody, think about the outdoor game. If you're defending somebody on the midfield, they cannot shoot to go. So the way you defend them, you are able to give them a lot more space to defend. When they're right outside the box, you've got to be tight. Otherwise, yeah. they're shooting. They don't need to actually be you. They can shoot. So the way we train, our fields are small, the kids can shoot from anywhere. So you cannot give any space. So even on the defensive side of the ball, you got to stay tight. So it, it develops both skills, the defensive part and the attacking part. So the pressure's high. The pressure's really the high. The pressure's high, really high. And, and so how long are these, these rounds? How long do the kids play? It depends on the kid's age and, you know, a lot of things. But I would say somewhere between two and four minutes. Okay, so at the end of that round, what happens next, Andy? Um, you know, at the end of the round, you get a different opponent and you got to head to, you know, so you go round robin and you, you know, you play against all the people on your team. And at the end of every round, scores are kept. You know, we really believe that, you know, that you have to know your statistics. You know, it, it's motivational. You know, you want to, you know, step up the ladder. So scores are kept and, you know, statistics are public. You know, there's no point in hiding anything. You know, and so uh, it's very motivational because everybody's got a goal to step up the ladder and get a higher position on the ladder. You know, and the person that lazes around for a couple of weeks, they start to slide. You know, and so they can't get away with being lazy. You know, and it, it's incredibly motivational. Which brings me back around to, you were talking just a little while ago about, um, uh, you know, every player gets to play equal playing time. You know, and there's got to be people in the audience here that are saying, well, I don't want my kid to learn that they get to play equal playing time if they're not given 100% effort. You know, and, you know, it's one of those things when on the face of it, you think to yourself, you know, that's a darn good argument, you know, because, you know, this kid isn't as skillful, you know, this kid isn't given as much effort. You know, there's, there's a whole host of reasons why you might not, you know, play a player. You don't want to win the game, so you want your fastest guy up front and bang him the ball and, you know, score that runaway goal, you know. And so there's a whole, there's, there's literally hundreds of reasons why you might not play equal playing time. But the nature of human development is people develop at different speeds. You know, and the minute you start overtly saying to a kid, you're not good enough, you know, and so I'm not gonna play you as much. Or you didn't try your hardest, you know, and it's a subjective judgment, but so I'm not gonna play you as much. You know, then what you're doing is you're not, you know, allowing that child the time to develop, to mature, to grow. You know, and a lot of kids fall by the wayside because they play on teams where the coach says, here's my start in 11 and you get to play some bit parts if we're winning, you know. 
And, you know, I would say to parents that are on a team where their kid isn't playing equally, you know, and, you know, and I, I'm talking maybe even all the way through to, you know, freshman, junior year, sophomore year in high school, you know, if you're not playing and you're not playing a lot of time, you need to go somewhere else. You need to drop down to another team if, you know, you're playing at too high a level and somebody's not prepared to pay you, play you, because you're not learning unless you're playing. And it's absolutely vital that we, as coaches, challenge ourselves to get into the heads of, you know, maybe the players that are weaker mentally, you know, to, to get them to believe more, teach them the skills that they need in order to d develop that brave creative leadership, you know, to feel confident, you know, to take charge. And it's a long-term process. It's not just, you know, one year and you're done. You know, you've got to make a dedication, a commitment, like I did to you from when you were just tiny until you went to college. You know, we've got to make that type of commitment and look at it in the long term instead of playing or coaching for our own ego now. You know, and, and so, and that's one of the saddest things is bad coaches, you know, that think it's about winning the game, chase kids out of our game because they don't get to play as much. They feel second rate, you know, and it happened to one of my own kids. You know, they, you know I, I wanted to put them with a good coach that I respected, but I didn't take into account that she'd come in as the low player on the totem pole, you know, and she, you know, she'd have to earn her playing time was what she was told, you know, and it destroyed her within a couple of months because she didn't get to play hardly at all unless the team was up by four or five goals and then she'd get a few minutes during the game. So practice for no reward, for no game. You know, and she dropped the game for a year as a result of the psychological damage that did when she was 11 years of age. Well, and, and I, I, to, to further paint that point, I, I think all coaches would agree that the, the platform for youth, youth soccer or youth sports and, and coaching that is, is one that is educational. The, the, it, it is on par with teachers, right? Coaches are on par with teachers. Could you imagine a scenario inside a classroom when, hey, you're going to have to wait to get the math book until our best 11 math students are done with it. And then we'll give you the math book and you can have a few minutes. Like, can you imagine a, a, a society where fam parents and, 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 and teachers would say, yeah, that's the best approach. And let's be honest. Let's, let's face it though. It's not best 11 and one math book. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, in soccer, it's literally the best 11 and one math book, you know, but one ball instead of a math book, yeah. you know? So, you know, it's literally one ball for the whole of the class, which might be 30 kids, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so, you know, if we had that scenario where there was only one book for 30 kids, you know, and you didn't get it, but once in a blue moon, and if you're on the back end, you didn't get it unless, you know, for maybe one 200th of the time, then, you know, it would be a horrible educational environment, you know, and you'd have your kid out of there in a heartbeat, or you'd be up at the school trying to lynch the, the principal, mm -hmm. you know, and so, you know, everybody's got a book each, everybody's got equal opportunity in the math class. You know, and that's what we try and do with the kids. You know, we try and give the kids as much as possible during their development of years a ball each, ball between two in a one-on-one. -on -one. You know, tons of experience with the key implement, like the book in the educational system, you know, and that's the only way that we're going to develop, like Stephen Covey says, that ability as an individual, that private victory that later on leads to public victory and credibility. So I want to challenge the audience a little bit because genuinely I think there's been a, a significant shift in American soccer um, uh, and, and, and youth American soccer. And Andy, I think you could probably speak to it. I think, I think 30 years ago, I think um, we, were, we, we as a coaching community were largely built around team concepts, right? We played 11 v 11 even at seven and eight years old. Um, and, and we weren't at very advanced in our thought process recognizing that that, that technical abilities on the ball was important. And I think we've improved I, I, as, a, as an American soccer culture. I think we more understand that technical uh, uh, touches on the ball matter. We are nowhere near perfect, nowhere ne near even close to being good, but we've improved over the last 30 I years. I would disagree. Well, I think we've gone backwards. Well, well let, me, let, me, let me make my point, and then, and then I'd, I'd love to push you back on it a little bit. But what has occurred is that the U.S. soccer specifically has, has, has given us directive that we should change our approach. And I think a lot of coaches will, will consider themselves to be technical coaches for the younger age groups, but when they hit 12 or 13 and the dawning of technical awareness happens, we need to then adjust and start teaching the tactical game. And that is so, so, so very wrong. And the reason it's so wrong is a point that Andy, you made to me really good, which is at 12 and 13, what do kids start to do? They start to grow. And as they grow, they start to add this new muscle mass onto their body. And if they don't continue with the technical development through those ages and beyond, then all of that technical work that, that the coaches think that they may have done 
at seven or eight got them nowhere, if that makes sense, because they've lost it. Well, yeah, if you, if, you, if you don't use it, you lose it. You know, and so, you know, if we're putting this backpack of another, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 pounds on our body and it's untrained muscle tissue, you know, and, and neuromuscular tissue, then, you know, what we're doing is we're basically, you know, slowing down what we learned when we were six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, you know, when we get to our growth spurt and all the way through to adulthood, when we put that whole new body on top of the original body, you know, and so, you know, but, you know, the, the, the problem goes much deeper than that because... Um, you know, we are, you know, in a situation where the world, in the soccer world, has adopted this scientific approach to everything, you know. And so we know more about nutrition. We know more about tactics. You know, we, we have all of these, um, you know, these scientific ways of looking at the game that help us win the game. And we can take shortcuts through the science. We can take shortcuts through the nutrition. There's one thing you can never take a shortcut through, and that's the neuromuscular learning. If you're going to be a great dribbler and a great goalkeeper, you have a goal scorer rather, you've got to develop these incredible neuromuscular skills. And it only comes from really working to death, you know, the the one-on-one skills that define the world's greatest players. But we a few episodes ago we talked about how Brazil is now coming back to the rest of the world because they're getting too much of this stuff, too much of the science. Well, you talk about that, Philippe. Yeah, I mean we Brazil lost its identity. And that's what it has been killing us the last, what, 15 years, 10, 15 years. And we are importing a lot of stuff from Europe um, in the scientific and tactical way. Uh, we have a bunch of European coaches now in uh, our first division league because we think um, by uh, improving our tactics, we're going to match up the tactics that the Europeans have and all that approach. And that's all wrong because Brazil never had that and we always beaten them, usually, uh, most of the times. So uh, instead of focusing on the right things, the w- things that we were good, our strengths, we started trying to compensate our weaknesses. And for me, that's the biggest mistake you can do in any area of life. It's whenever we talk about uh, should you train your weak foot uh, equally, you're focusing on your weakness instead of focusing on your strength. You need to focus on your strength. Brazil's strength was always 1v1 creativity, uh, being unpredictable and really hard to defend. Um, now Brazil became predictable. It, we have literally one player that it's extraordinary and people don't know what he's going to do, which is Neymar. And whenever he's not having a good day or he's hurt or whatever is happening in his life, we have a lot of stuff happening in his life. <laughs> Um, <laughs> we don't have much. It's a very predictable team, and it has been like that for the last 10, 15 years. So it's it's sad. We we are not going to match up what Europe has been doing for 50 years because they didn't have the creativity. Yep. So it, it it's sad, and that's what's happening. And hopefully uh, some people are trying to realize that, and hopefully it will change, and we're going to have more Neymars, Ronaldos, and... Bingo. And what, what this was, was, you know, it's the Anson Dorrance key, you know, tenet, you know, and that's the margin of greatness. Mm-hmm. And Brazil had the margin of greatness, you know, because it was creative, it was fun, it was, it was out there on the ragged edge, you know, you know, it was doing things that people hadn't seen before, playing in ways that people hadn't seen before. And, you know, being that, you know, that player that could take one, two, three players on and score an absolutely fantastic goal. And that was so much what decided a game. And it still is. That's the interesting thing is if you go and watch the big game, some moment of brilliance is still what decides the game. So what gives you the margin of greatness has not changed. It's, it's the focus of the coaching community that's changed into what they believe is controllable. And most of the coaching community doesn't think that you can control the development of creativity. So they don't think that you can give a player the margin of greatness. And we've been doing it for decades. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's part of the points of this podcast is literally to tell you that you can manufacture creativity, but you're not going to manufacture creativity in your training sessions when you devote 30, 30 minutes at, at, at U9 to, to some technical work and dribbling through cones and fast footwork stuff, peeing in the wetsuit, right? Um, and, and, and assume that that creativity creates creativity you have to commit to it fully and wholly and and to talk about what Philippe was saying before with 1v1s we start 1v1s literally at birth 
right? When we first get these kids, we are doing 1v1s, um, along with slow move training and maestro, which we talked in the first episode, but we are doing a ton of 1v1s and we are still doing 1v1s at 13. And I don't mean for 20 minutes, every other practice. I mean, we are doing 1v1s for all of every practice with maybe the last 10 minutes, just a a bit of a a competitive 4v4 uh, game just to keep wet the kid's appetite, but it's 1v1s. And then at the end of that, the next practice is 1v1s again. And eventually we transition to 2v2s and that's going to be a podcast episode for us at some point but when we transition to 2v2s even at 16 if you felt like in the games Andy we weren't taking players on enough you said guys we're going to go back to two weeks of solid 1v1s or if you thought our fitness had dropped a little bit guys we're going to go back to 1v1s we all groaned a little bit right but, but we got into it we got stuck in we went after it and our creativity didn't disappear it stuck with us all the way through to 18. So what are some of the people in the audience thinking now you know you if you play so much one-on-one, how do you get your head up and play the team game? You know, and this is one of the interesting things. If you play a ton of one-on-one, you become so good with the ball at your feet, you no longer need to look at it because you can do things by touch. You know, and so you, know, you can now you know, perform moves under pressure and you're actually just looking at the opponent or beyond the opponent because you're so confident with the ball that you can you know, go blind on the ball because you've developed such a oneness, such a relationship with the ball, and you can do moves under pressure without ever looking at the ball hardly because you've become that good over you know, the time, you know, the 10 years that you've been totally focused on one-on-ones, you've become that good. So you can, all the time, and I've known this over the years, I see my players, you know, and when they first start working on the one-on-ones, they're looking at this and looking at their feet. You know, and you fast forward a couple of years and it's, it's this, you know, and, so, and then you fast forward a few more years and it's this, mostly with the occasional glance down and then you fast forward another couple of years and it's all this because this is on autopilot they can do the most amazing things without looking at the ball and these other clubs that we play against they don't spend any time on the fakes and moves they don't get to the point where they can ever get beyond keeping their head down so the coaches on those teams and the parents on those teams the the perspective they have is that anybody that's a really good dribbler is head down and is unable to see the options off the ball where if you get to a certain level, it's the other way completely, is you hardly ever have to look at the ball, and you're always able to be looking at the other options. If you don't believe me, watch the world's greatest players. Mm-hmm. Because Ronaldinho had an unbelievable vision. That's what I was going to say. I was going to exactly, exactly say, talk about Ronaldinho. Like, he, he, did, he passed with his back. Literally, ball came. <laughs> he turned his back and used his back to pass. Split pass in between the defense, breaking the whole defensive line. Like, back heel, like, he literally, he flicked the ball like, like a seal when it, the seal is bouncing the ball in the head. It, it's how he played. He's not even looking, or he would look here and pass there. Like, it was amazing. And did he really spend hours working on passing and seeing the field and trying to ping the ball? No, he just... They're dribbling, but he was so good that he didn't need to look to the ball. He didn't need to see anything. He's like he has a 360 radar on his head, and he's seeing everything. So he sees the ball. He sees the defenders. He sees his teammates. He sees the fans. He waves at his mom while he's playing. So it's, it's the way it is. And because he was so fantastic on the ball that he was able to see everything. So, so I, got, I got a, you know, like a, a lot of people have seen this clip, but there is a clip where a famous baseball player, and I forget the guy's name, I used to know it, is, is being interviewed, and he's being interviewed uh, you know, right down the foul line at the far as away from the home plate as you can get. You know, and during the middle of the interview, somebody hits, you know, gets a clean strike on the ball. It's, you know, the guy that's being interviewed has his back to the home plate, and the ball is coming right at the back of this guy's head. And he's looking at the interviewer, and the last minute, he's got his glove on, at the last minute, he turns around without ever looking at the ball and he catches the ball behind his left ear. And he not once looked at the ball during the ball's flight. He was looking away from the ball. And the capability of the human, you know, to develop their senses to an incredible degree by working, you know, in really, really intense situations is just unbelievable. The things that Tiger Woods can do with a golf club. You know, Roger Federer can do with a tennis racket. These are things, these are superhumans, you know, and, you know, and the the guy that, you know, that that caught that baseball, you know, Ronaldinho, these people have developed a radar and you can only develop the radar 
if you have a love affair with the ball, if you're a ball hog. That's the only way to develop that radar. Yeah, it's, it's more than that, though. I'm going to challenge you a little bit because um, it's, it's more than just having a love affair with the ball. It's having a love affair with the ball in intense, pressure-packed environments. And earlier you said that, that, other, that other coaches and clubs, they don't focus or teach the skills. And, and I think that's changed a little bit. I think you will find other clubs that will teach a scissors move or a Maradona move. The difference, and it's a giant difference, is that they don't make those kids do those skills, practice after practice, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, in intense pressure-packed environments. They'll do some scissors and Maradonas during their technical warm-up while they're going through some cones, but then practice starts, and so they start non-directional keep-away or positional play, right? Instead, the approach that we've taken is we teach those skills, and then we spend an hour or an hour and a half of intense, and I mean intense, dog-eat-dog, edge-of-comfort-zone edge stuff where the kids have to use skill to create, otherwise they're going to get killed and die in the 1v1. And if they, if they get killed and they die in the 1v1, they will eventually lose motivation. And so they have to become extra motivated to acquire these skills under pressure. And then it becomes committed to memory. And that's, that's the difference. I think, I think we have improved in as much that there are more coaches in America that will teach a scissors, but we are, they are still so far from it because they teach the scissors half-heartedly during a technical warm-up, and then the parents, oh, my kid can do a scissors. They can't do a scissors under pressure in the state final with three defenders around them to create a bit of space to bury the ball in the back of the net, and that's the difference. And that's what made Brazil great, right? And, and continues to make Brazil great, although you make the argument that it's, it's less than what it used to be. It's that pressure-packed in tight spaces environment that they learn those skills so that as they ascended in the game they could continue to achieve with that and I, and I think that's that's a giant point that can't be missed does that make sense yeah it all makes sense and the, the other thing I'd like to add to that is that um, you know you, you talked about teaching a scissors you know and you know and so you know we teach fundamentally you know six moves with you know the fake shot or fake pass on the front of the pre-fake yeah. you know and um, we teach these moves, you know, to a level of technical efficiency that is unheard of in the game. I haven't seen it anywhere in the world, you know, and, you know, we've got, you know, whole video sequences with most common errors and... Maestro know, from episode one. Right, the Maestro series, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and so, you know, there's, there's teaching scissors and then there's really nailing it and digging in and digging deep and, and getting your kids to understand, you know, and right before this podcast, I came from two hours of working on the Maestro series and getting my kids to understand not just the scissors, but the most difficult version and the most effective version of the scissors with all the pieces put together, you know, and a lot of times when you see a scissors, you know, on TV as in a highlight tape, it's not the most effective way of doing a scissors. You know, there's a really deep and effective way of doing a move, you know, and it's actually best to teach the most difficult way of doing each move so that even you know, a, a smaller angle in the move that, you know, would, would not be, you know, give you as much separation, but might be the right solution for a specific situation in the game, you know, that's learned within the more difficult part of the move. So we teach the most difficult version and we grill them and we drill them until our players absolutely understand every tiny little nuance of their their body's position, the foot's relation to the ball in every little piece of the move so that by the time they get into the game situation, they don't just get separation, they get massive separation from the defender. They don't just sneak past the defender, they absolutely destroy a defender. You know, and without going into the actual mechanics of the move, which would, you know, is, is you know, something that you know, we can work with people that want that type of stuff and get that to them, you know, that's the key to it, is doing it you know, the right way. You know, it's getting a PhD in the scissors. It's getting a PhD in the drag Maradona, the most difficult form of the Maradona that the, the world is yet to see on TV yet. It's, it's, it's learning it the right way and then, and then creating an environment where the kids spend 10,000 hours doing that skill at the complete edge of their comfort zone always. So as soon as they get comfortable, 
it ratchets up and it ratchets up because the defender gets better, right? Because the round gets a little bit longer because they get a little bit older and, 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 and all of the other players on the field get a little bit faster. And so space becomes a little bit tighter, right? Like it's inherently, uh, something that, that enables kids to truly become wizards on the ball. And we have those players that have come from our system. Um, and, and they've come from our system, not because they learned to do the scissors through some cones and then they carried on at 12 to, okay, we're going to work on non-directional keep away. They became wizards with the ball because at 17, they were still spending 90% of every practice in the most intense dog eat dog, one V one creative, uh, quagmire possible. And, and let's, you know, let's kind of, uh, um, you know, we talked a little bit about Ashington, you know, and um, you were contacted by who recently? And what did he say? Yeah, I brought it up. With the, you forget things fast. It's that old age. I brought it up at the top of this episode. But, but, but you, you know, a little bit deeper, you know, he remembers that environment, right? Yeah, and he yeah, remembers yeah. the crowded streets, yeah. you know, and the kids playing with a tennis ball, you know, and that, that craziness, that edge of chaos environment that developed Bobby Charlton and Jackie Charlton, who didn't know the moves, you know, but they got to be incredibly, you know, uh, Jimmy Adamson, PFA Players of the Years of the Year, um, Professional Football Writer of the Year, Player of the Year, the only one that existed. You know, these three people came from the same street, you know, and so, you know, and, and you know, he heard what we had to say and he said, I know, bang on, you know, but that was the environment, you know, it, everything came together to create almost a perfect environment that would have been perfect if we'd have had the Brazilian ethos underlying everything to where everybody is out there doing the funkiest stuff you know and that's the point is that this edge of chaos you know atmosphere you know that they developed in Ashington you know optimized the potential of all these kids you know and you know put together you know literally 44 professional players out of 70 something famous people from Ashington you know which is just unheard of you know, and, and that's why it happens. And, and like, again, we probably should wrap up this episode here soon, but, but we talked last episode about the facilities that we train in and the really tight indoor spaces. You know, I think in total as a club in our 30 year history, we've had something like 15 or 16 uh, uh, players that have gone on to represent various levels of youth national teams. And um, over the last 18, 24 months, we've had seven. Um, play, current players or uh, recently alumni players that have gone on to play in various youth national teams. And that's in the last 24 months. The previous 28 years, we had seven. And what's the difference, right? Like we've, well, the difference for us is that the spaces become smaller and tighter and more fast, right? We've, and before, when I was a kid, we only got indoor space a little bit of the time. We were outside most of the time where, where the space wasn't nearly as tight or, or crowded. And so as we've continued to be able to create more Ashington-like space, for our kids that we train, um, uh, we, we've seen a giant leap forward in, in, in success in terms of the goal, giving kids a higher uh, ceiling that they, they, they and can reach. That, that is all despite the fact that kids these days put a fraction of the time into soccer that kids in Ashington put into soccer. Great point. You know, so the sun always shines on indoor soccer, but what we get is we get a limited window. You know, what parent wants their kids to be totally focused on soccer? They've got to be, you know, good students. They've got to, you know, work on academics and, and become intellectuals if they're going to be successful in life. Arguably, you have to be more diverse in life now because there's so much going on in the world than you ever had to be before. So in the time available for soccer, what we've done is we've ratcheted up the speed of development so that in that limited, you know, let's say it's eight hours a week that that family is prepared to give to soccer per kid, you know, then we've ratcheted up so that in eight hours worth of time, we might actually get compared to our competitor clubs, we might get 30 hours worth, worth of development in that eight hours worth of time because of the environment we've created and you know how many repetitions the kid, kids get and the philosophy that we have that you know allows us to develop their their shooting techniques their their move techniques so we can you know quicken the pace of their development even more of a reason to uh, make the game smaller teach fewer things the most important things that have the the highest degree of transfer right and so that, that when the coaches are spending time working on non-directional keep away i keep nailing that right but like more time there they only get so much time and they are wasting the opportunity to develop truly creative go for it give me the ball i want the responsibility i'm going to make this happen yeah i think and, and that that's the point that i was going to 
make that we haven't touched it and we're probably going to have to do it in another episode. The mentality that comes within the 1v1 situation is everything. It's the game changer as well. Soccer is not only technical, not only physical, but it's psychological too. It's very, very important. The best players are the ones that can step up in the hard moments. And when you're used to do 1v1s throughout your whole youth career, you are taking the responsibility and you're going at it. You're not afraid. It's like if you're passing, you're passing the responsibility by someone else. If I'm passing to you, you're going to shoot and you're going to score the goal. If we win, it's because you scored. If we lose, it's because you didn't score. You're not giving yourself the chance to take the responsibility. When you do the 1v1s and you have that mentality that ingrains in the kid and the kid that will transfer later on the kid is not going to be um okay if the coach puts someone else to take the pk the kid will want the pk yeah. because they're gonna want to take the responsibility and that's everything and that will translate in life you're not gonna uh, go to work and just do whatever uh, you're told and you know, uh, let someone else do that. So you're gonna have to try. I want to transition take responsibility. You, you've, you've got to tell a John Cutter story here. Well, this the, is the so first, perfect. The first thing I want to deal with is, is you know, this. Look at what we do. Look at what a lot of coaches do. You know, a lot of coaches, you know, work on, um, you know, fast footwork. You know, and juggling. You know, and we've we've covered that. Not going to cover that again. What about rondos? Rondos eight versus two. Rondos, you know, you know, hot potato the ball, get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. You and know, don't move while you're doing it. And stand so. <laughs> like an absolute cone while you're doing it. And, and coaches all over the world seem to love this garbage. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and this is not about beating players, actually making progress, going to goal and burying the ball in the net like what we do. You know, and, you know, and people just base their whole coaching philosophy around rondos. Give me a break. Yeah. You're going nowhere and, you know, you're just building in a hot potato. I'm scared to death to take a player on. You know, and it just drives me nuts. Yeah. You know, so, but let's talk about that leadership piece as we, as we wrap up this episode. So we talked about 1v1s and it creates this, this, this give me the responsibility. Uh, you know, there's a problem. You know, you know you'll, I'll solve it, right? And, and it has that attitude. And, and, and you tell a great story of a former teammate of mine that grew up on the same team playing for you um, when you got a random call from his dad, John Cuttis. Can you, can you uh, remind share story? Remind me. Remind me. I'm, so, so, I'm getting so, old. So you're driving down the highway. Uh, you, you tell us in great detail. And John calls you and says, Andy, I, I have to tell you about a conversation me and, and and my wife had last night right about about how the legends club developed his boy to be a leader yeah, to, yeah. you know to take charge uh, specifically how 1v1s right. developed his right. his two boys aaron and seth right the two oldest played for you and for tom and played in this 1v1 go at it all the time where the third boy played in a different uh setup didn't play for yeah, ryan yeah. ryan yeah. yeah and and he said that the, the three boys they've all they've they've all gone on their own path but but aaron and seth the two oldest are leaders in two totally different genres i think one is a pastor for a church or a youth pastor or something um and and aaron started his own business right. um and and ryan not so much and the difference between the three of them um, the best they can t that they can tell because they were raised the same was was two of them were raised specifically uh, uh, in a don't you know take the responsibility don't pass the responsibility on to somebody else and he credited a lot of that to, to you and and you know the, the guy that we're talking about you know was the uh, the the head of the region for Merrill Lynch I mean you know, and then went out on his own as a financial extremely advisor. accomplished person incredibly accomplished you know just one of these people that generated instant respect you know and a real thinker you know and and so. You know, we have to consider the source. Whenever we look at anything, really look at where this stuff is coming from. Find out where it's coming from. And, you know, John's point was that, you know, that basically, and this is what he said, he said, in terms of a basic makeup as a kid, they were very similar, similar kids, all three. And, you know, him and his wife, Jamie, were discussing this, you know, and it's just out of the blue, I get this call and say, the, the only thing that we can identify as being different is that Aaron and Seth got the full-blown Legends treatment from when they were four or five years of age, and Ryan didn't. You know, so he was never expected in this public forum to take a leadership role and responsibility and fail and fail and fail and fail until he succeeded. You and know? John's comment wasn't that Ryan hadn't succeeded. He just said that Aaron and Seth were definitive leaders. Um, in, 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 their, in their arenas. Right, right. You know, he wasn't running Ryan down, you know, no. just saying that, you know, the, the, but his opinion was that this was the environment that made the difference. 
you know, and that was the real key there is, you know, and we have to ask ourselves why. Well, we expect the individual to shine, you know, to take the leadership responsibility, you know, to try the thing they can't do. You know, if, if you only go where you've been before, how do you ever make progress? Mm -hmm. So you have to get out of your box. You have to push the edge of chaos, get out on the ragged edge, you know, and take a risk. The beauty is here, we're training risk for life, risk taking for life, but here nobody dies. Mm -hmm. You know, the worst thing that happens is you lose the ball. You know, come on, you know, you know, you've got to be at a, you know, risk losing the ball in order to, you know, achieve the great goal, you know, so, and that's what it's all about. Other teams are playing possession. No, no, you can't lose it. You can't lose it. Play the way you're facing, you know, you know, it's, you know, play the way you're facing, you know, it's the ball just came from my keeper. Do I want to give it back to my keeper? Play the way I'm facing, you know, and kids only play the way they're facing. No, I want to collect the ball. I want to turn. I want to go at the next guy. I want to hit him with a double scissors, leave him in my dust, sucking on my exhaust, you know, and, and, you know, break the lines and create the goal scoring opportunity at the other end. You know, there's so many contradictions because people want to win now mm -hmm. instead of develop brave creative leaders for life. Yep, yep, 100%. Well, guys, hopefully hopefully, this spirited conversation and even a little back and forth between the three of us uh, maybe uh, encouraged you to dig a little deeper. Um, specifically, if there was one thing that I think the three of us would really push you is, is, is focus on the most important thing, and that's developing leadership skills, but also developing the most important skill set, which is deceptive dribbling and goal scoring. And if you take a total focus, and I mean that, I mean absolutely total focus on the most important skills. In other words, you make the game smaller and the focus much more narrow, you're going to find that you develop kids and, 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 and eventually adults and players that, that can achieve at such a higher level. And, and the game becomes a whole lot more fun to coach this way. So um, with that said, guys, we have a ton of resources that we could share with you through YouTube and, 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 and books and writing and, and, and various things. So if, if you ever want to reach out, do so. You can catch us on any of the social medias. We're happy to connect and, 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 and discuss and talk and share and, and, and learn uh, because maybe you guys have some stuff that, that we can learn from as well. Um, but Philippe, Andy, thank you so much for this episode. Thank you, guys. I quite enjoyed the intensity at times. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Andy. Yep. Cheers. Thanks, guys.